welcome to the Canine Conservationists podcast, where we're positively obsessed with conservation detection dogs. Join us every week to discuss detection training, canine welfare, conservation biology, and everything in between. I'm Kayla Fratt, one of the co-founders of Canine Conservationists, where we train dogs to detect data for land managers, researchers, agencies, and NGOs. We still don't have any new reviews on Apple Podcasts, so if you haven't yet, please do go ahead and drop us one over there. Uh, Our last review was in 2022, and it is almost September 2023 at this point. Today, I'm super excited to be talking to Drs. Ann Carter and Emily Hall again about heat injury. So if you enjoyed the episode with Janice from the Veterinary Tactical Group, this is going to be a follow-on. We're expanding. We're going into a couple different corners and reiterating some of the most important information out there about heat injury. Um, But first, we do have a science highlight to go over. So this is a really quick and uh, Pretty straightforward paper that I read just yesterday titled The Effect of Urine Sample Temperature on the Efficacy of Olfactory Detection of Prostate Cancer in Men by a Specially Trained Dog. This was published in July 2023 in the Journal of the University of Veterinary Sciences in the Czech Republic, and it was published by Lucy Urbanova and a whole bunch of other lovely sounding co-authors with all quite Czech-sounding names. I'm not going to insult the Czech language by trying to pronounce. Um, The question that they were trying to answer is whether or not urine sample temperature affects the efficacy of a cancer detection dog. They had one cancer detection dog in this study, a female German Shepherd. And basically what they did is they had 218 samples and they divided them into four groups. They had positive and negative samples. And then they had the samples stored either between 2 and 14 degrees Celsius and or 15 and 23 degrees Celsius. Long story short, they found that there was not a significant difference in the dog's capability um, to distinguish positive from negative samples based on the urine temperature. As always, there's quite a few limitations to this. Of course, this is just one dog. I also would be really interested to know what would have happened if they had had the temperature bands for storing quite a bit narrower. So maybe, I, I don't know, would you have found a difference if the, they had some samples stored between 2 and 5 degrees Celsius, another between you know 14 and 15 degrees Celsius, and then another couple between 21 and 23 degrees Celsius? You know That would make the stats more challenging. You would need a larger sample size in order to get good p-values. But um, I the the really large and almost overlapping temperature bands were something that I found really interesting. And there wasn't a chart that I could find that said kind of what number of samples were at each um, given temperature. Because again, like 2 to 14 degrees Celsius seems like a pretty wide range. Um, but we'll drop that link over into the show notes if anyone wants to check it out. Are you ready to learn more about training and handling conservation detection dogs? I'm Heather, one of the co-founders of Canine Conservationist. Starting in January 2024, I'll be leading a live session of our online conservation dog handler course with the help of Kayla and Rachel. The course includes 18 sections of material covering topics like dog selection, alert training, sensitivity and specificity, odor dynamics, field safety, finding work, and more. Students in the live session will also have weekly Zoom meetings to discuss the learning and go over homework. All students gain lifetime access to the course material and our online community of learners through WhatsApp and Facebook. For those looking to earn CEUs, the course is approved by CPDT, IAABC, and KPA. We can't wait to join you on your journey. Sign up for the waitlist today, linked in the show notes. So why don't we go ahead and start out, Anne, um, why don't you introduce yourself to our listeners, and then Emily, same thing. Uh, tell us about yourself, your work, and uh, the animals you share your life with. 
Hi, I'm Anne Carter. Um, I recently moved up to Scotland um, from the Midlands. I work at Scottish Rural Colleges um, just over the border in Scotland. Um, I am, I would guess, owned by three dogs. I've got two German Shorthead Pointers and a Pointer Cross Bracco, who's a rescue, um, and half a dozen chickens and a very noisy cockerel. Um, <laughs> And I've been working in canine research for probably about the last 15 years or so. Um, I pulled Emily into uh, the fold about 10 or so years ago. Um, we started looking at heat-related illness in canicross dogs um, because I'm a, an avid canicrosser. So for those of you who aren't sure what that is, um, if you think about sled dog sports and instead of a sled, you run behind the dog. And if you're feeling really uh, full of adrenaline, then you can attach them to the front of a mountain bike and, and do something similar at speed. Um, so started looking at, at my sports interest alongside my research interest and decided that if I was going to start looking at heat related illness, then I needed to find a, a tame vet to work alongside and got <laughs> to know Emily in my previous role. I guess that's where I come in. Um, so yeah, I'm Emily Hall and I currently work for the Royal Veterinary College in London in the United Kingdom. Um, I started out as a small animal veterinary surgeon, um, so seeing people's pets. Um, spent about a decade in small animal GP practice and then moved into teaching and yes, Anne collared me nearly 10 years ago um, to start taking dog temperatures of all things. Um, and once we started looking at heat stroke risk in canicross dogs, it kind of uncovered a little bit of a gap in the evidence and, and literature base that there really wasn't very much about heat stroke in pet dogs in the UK um, for one thing but also really worldwide um, except for the team in Israel who've been doing some incredible work for many many years now. Um, so I then met Dan O'Neill who's our other major um, co-author on most of our heat stroke papers at a conference and badgered him into letting us use the Vet Compass database to do our most recent research um, and that database gives us access to the veterinary records of millions of uk dogs um so we can we can use big data to have a look at, at the questions that we're trying to answer through our research and that's where our heat stroke research really took off and came from wow that sounds like an amazing database to get to work with and yeah and i you know i'm excited to get to talk a little bit about the canacross side of things as well just because i uh, i haven't done a lot of canacross competing myself but i've done a fair bit of ski genreing um, oh, wow and it's always it's always fascinating from the heat side of things to watch you know the dogs you know it's four four degrees Fahrenheit out so I don't I don't know what that is in Celsius negative something and in the uh, both of my dogs have mastered as they're at a dead sprint still like managing to drop a shoulder and like grind the side of their face and shoulder into the snow um, to cool themselves off and you know usually we try to stop at that point and let them <laughs> cool off a little bit but it's always crazy to to see just how hot they can get no matter how cold it is outside. So yeah, why don't, go ahead. Uh, just definitely it's, it is one of those things. And that's one of the things we started to notice when we were taking temperatures is I think the assumption is always because these are, are winter sports and, and even mm -hmm. canicross and, and bike drawer are, are through the winter, that actually the dogs get very, very hot. Um, mm -hmm. And even though we would expect them to, to be cooler in those winter periods. So that started to kind of pique our interest from the outset. 
Oh yeah. I mean, I, I, yeah, I used to be a competitive cross country skier again. And like, I mean, I would finish races when it was 10 degrees Fahrenheit out pouring sweat. And then, you know, and, and, and it's interesting, actually, we were just talking before we record, we hit record about, you know, this really persistent myth of don't cool down too fast um, after a heat injury. But, um, you know, what I saw in cross country skiing as well, and it's different because we're covered in sweat. So if I was covered in sweat at the end of a race and then didn't get that, those clothes off and then into dry, you know, a dry parka right away, then I would swing from sweating to hypothermia very, very, very quickly. Um, but that's actually a really different situation. And I wonder how much of the persistence of this myth actually comes from the misunderstanding of like, you know, I was never in true heat stress. I was sweating, but I wasn't, you know, I wasn't actually getting heat exhaustion or a heat stroke nowhere near it. And it was the sweat that was really the problem that like the sweat freezing was what cooled me down too fast and swung me over into hypothermia. Um, and I've, I don't know if I've ever kind of made that sort of connection before. And I don't know how many other people really have the, the misfortune of having had that sort of experience. <laughs> the way cross-country ski racers tend to. <laughs> it's one of the challenges, I think, with researching heat stroke and especially with researching how to cool people and dogs and horses um, who've got heat mm -hmm. stroke because ethically we obviously can't go out and give a whole load of dogs heat stroke because that would just be horrendous. Yeah. People did back in the 70s and 80s. Let's, mm -hmm. let's not joke around. Um, but... Yeah, so a lot of the studies are using athletes with hypothermia. So they're too mm -hmm. hot, but they don't have heat-related illness. Um, and yeah, that is one of the key limitations we have with much of the research that we have available at the moment. Um, so yes. Yeah, well, and even, you know, one of the things I learned from talking to Janice is that even if you wanted to and could get ethical permission to, it probably would be harder to control this than we'd like to believe anyway, because, you know, it's, I don't think I had fully realized how individualized, you know, that point of heat stroke actually is for the dogs and how, you know, how varied their capability in tolerating that heat is. Definitely. Yeah. And, and I think, there is, you know, the temperatures that we were taking at the end of Canicross races, if you just took those temperatures aside from anything else, uh, as, a, as a vet, Emily would be looking at those going, we have a problem here, these dogs need treatment, mm -hmm. when actually these are dogs that have just finished uh, a sprint race. And as Emily mentioned, they are hypothermic, but they're not hitting that heat-related illness and, and they're cooling down naturally um, sort of with appropriate cooling methods, but we're not seeing them hit that level that, that we have a problem in a veterinary sense. Um, and it, it does make it more challenging in terms of what we're looking at, but then the capacity for dogs, a bit like people, to cope with different temperatures, different conditions is very varied. Um, and their capacity also to acclimatize to those different conditions as well um you know mm -hmm. you put me in in hot weather the, one of the reasons i can cross is i don't do heat i don't cope well in the heat um i don't seem to adapt particularly well to the heat so i'm a winter runner and in the same sense we see that in our dogs is there is a huge amount of variability in the way they respond to those different conditions so it's very difficult to get a, a sort of consistent response in the way we'd like 
and we also know that the, the, the baseline temperature of a dog is a temperature range. It's not a, a single value. Mm-hmm. So even within that, you've got dogs that naturally run cold, as it were, and dogs mm-hmm. that naturally will run warm. And so you can see that individual variation between them to be able to, to make that comparison but by comparing those two individuals, a dog that is naturally cooler at its baseline may never reach the temperatures that we see in a dog that is naturally warmer in its baseline. Yeah, that that makes perfect sense. And Emily, this must be kind of a consistent problem just in veterinary research as well. I, you know, I was just thinking about like the the best responses for a dog with a torn CCL, which is something that uh, my dog tore his CCL in November. Uh, and, uh, you know, it, you can't just go and like give a bunch of dogs the same exact, t- you know, CCL tear that is the same depth and the same in the same area and then actually see what therapy is or um, which surgery is the best option for them. You just kind of have to, you know, look at those big data sets and hope that general trends come out if you've got enough data i suppose yeah i think that's one of the values of vet compass is that we can use those really big data sets and we can include variation um because traditionally some veterinary studies have tried to control a lot so you know you have studies where they've only looked at one breed Mm -hmm. a lot of the time studies may exclude um, comorbidities so if animals have got a pre-existing condition then they're excluded from the study because they have a pre-existing condition therefore we're not going to look at them for their heart disease because they already have skin disease and so that's one of the things we deliberately did with our heat straight research was we included every dog regardless of whether they had underlying conditions so yes we had dogs who had underlying problems like laryngeal paralysis yes we had dogs that were diagnosed as having obesity or BOAS uh, brachycephalic obstructive airways syndrome um and that was deliberate because we need to know about that it's not very well saying the risk factors for heat stroke are x y and z oh but we excluded all the dogs that had a pre-existing health condition no we need to know and if your dog has this pre-existing health condition they are also at increased risk and that is going to make their risk even even greater um yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's the sort of thing that I, I understand where the scientists are coming from when they want to try to do that. But it reminds me, and I can't remember, I guess it, it's a lot of human medical stuff where, you know, they've, they, up until some period of time, at least in the US, it was pretty common to not include female mice and then eventually women yeah. in. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> in your research and it's like well because well like menstrual stuff makes it too complicated it's like so what's going to happen when we release it out to all the people who menstruate um it seems like something that we would want to know about and yeah especially i mean i it, it almost seems more inherently obvious to me that like of course we need the obese brachycephalic dogs in heat research <laughs> like how on earth would you even say that you're looking at anything if you're not including those dogs unless you're really saying that this is just for military working dogs or something like that yeah. and, the, yeah. and this is the thing is is making this relevant for the pet population as much as as anything because actually where we're seeing you know i was going to say increase in heat waves in the uk but not this year um but certainly you know we're seeing more extremes of temperature so mm-hmm. actually our our normal pet population 
is you know is the largest population we're looking at and in a sense the the military working dogs and those that are very fit very healthy arguably then have a, a slightly reduced risk because of those factors whereas the dogs that do have boas the dogs that are obese those confounding factors also contribute to their risk of heat related illness so we need to be aware of those that's really important to understand how those factors link in otherwise it's not relevant to our everyday pet owner in the same way yeah absolutely so maybe now is a good time to just jump into some of your your research and use that as a as a lens to cover all of the other questions that i have and if we miss anything specifically we can always come back and ask that um, separately so yeah i don't know um if do we want to start with the cane across research and then um i would also love to talk to you guys a little bit about cars so we one of our first major studies was um essentially going out into fields quite early in the weekend and taking temperatures of dogs running in canning cross races um and big thanks to midlands canning cross for allowing us to conduct our research at their races and all the owners and dogs who took part because yeah we, we took hundreds of, of dog temperatures as part of that study um and bearing in mind that canning cross races in the uk run fairly exclusively at least with that club between september and april so traditionally the kind of autumn winter heading into spring months which should be reasonably cold um we were taking dogs temperatures after between about two and five kilometer races um i'm sorry i can't do that into miles in my head because that's okay <laughs> <can't>. that's, <laughs> um, yeah that's somewhere between like one and a half and three and a half miles ish sounds about yeah. right um, yeah and some days there was snow on the ground, some days it was raining, there were gale force winds, it was never particularly hot. Um, and yet at almost every race we went to, as Anne said earlier, we had dogs where we were measuring a post-race temperature of around 42.5 um, centigrade, which I think is pushing kind of 109, 110 Fahrenheit. Off the top it's of my a, head. <laughs> I'm, I'm just going to pull up a Celsius to Fahrenheit converter well, for us for the rest of this. Um, yeah, so 42.5 is 108.5. 108, so, yeah, okay. that's hot. That's, yeah, that is hot. Um, and, I, and the kind of historical canine heat stroke work kind of pinpointed 43 as a fairly critical number. Of Above mm. that really is what's predicting severe heat-related illness and death um so yeah as i said you know we were taking these temperatures and i was looking at them and going oh boy that's hot and yet within five minutes of finishing the race the dogs were completely normal there were no clinical signs of heat-related illness there's no collapse no diarrhea no vomiting nothing um and they were cooling down pretty quickly so that kind of started raising red flags for us because every piece of research we read about heat stroke was telling us that a dog with a temperature over 41 should be considered to have heat stroke and it's like well <laughs> we have a bunch of dogs here with a temperature over 41 and absolutely no clinical signs so what's going on but equally these temperatures were occurring in dogs racing in the snow um you know minus mm -hmm. five centigrade which is not as cold as, as it gets where you are i'm sure but still pretty chilly and not a time of year when we'd consider dogs to be at risk um so that data set included they were primarily pet dogs but pet dogs competing at a kind of regional level in the uk yeah. um, and included everything from i think we had a, a cockapoo 
she cockapoo? Yeah. yeah, teeny tiny little yeah. cockapoo. Oh my um, god, right I want to run Kane across with a cockapoo. That's <laughs> look, I'm like tearing up. That's so cute. <laughs> and yeah, I don't know how much you assist with the running, but yeah, very cute. Um, yeah. a fantastic time, though. <laughs> oh, I'm sure. <laughs> Gosh, they should have height classes for cane across, like in fly ball. <laughs> well, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, right up to the kind of the big musterlanders, German shepherds, red mm-hmm. setters, um, and lots and lots and lots of pointers, as you can imagine. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, we analysed their post-race temperature to to try and identify which variables kind of predicted how hot the dogs were getting um, to a certain extent. And essentially, um, as I think we may have already touched on, male dogs definitely got hotter than female dogs. Mm-hmm. Um, their temperatures went up higher and their temperature increase was more than the females as well. And we have actually re- recently re-reviewed that data um, for reasons we won't go into, but have now found that air temperature did influence canine body temperature. So unsurprisingly, the hotter yeah. it was outside, the hotter the dogs were getting. It's not a direct relationship. You know, you can't really predict how hot your dog's going to get from the outside temperature because, as we've already discussed, there's loads of other factors like fitness, hydration, um, how fat they are, whether or not they're obese or underweight or fit. Um, you know, which point they are in the season even can influence how they cope with heat, but it is an important factor. Um, We also recently sort of spotted that actually the long-haired dogs appeared to be getting hotter than the short and the medium-coated dogs, which again, during exercise, you would expect if they're being insulated by a great big thick double coat, um, then yeah, that is going to reduce their heat loss, so likely get them hotter. Um, So yeah, they were our our main findings from that study. Yeah. Was there any difference in neuter status for for the dogs or do you I, I, what is what is your neutering culture in the u.s or in in the uk i don't know like in the u.s you would be hard pressed outside of sport worlds to get a decent representation of intact dogs but we didn't actually i don't think we measured that partly because some dogs changed because <laughs> oh. we, we collected data across three seasons we, we didn't um, have a huge number of entire particularly mm-hmm. males there there is a, a shift i think starting to happen um it, i would say what the last five ten years or so that mm-hmm. people are less inclined to sort of automatically neuter um yeah. you know historically it was always your dog reaches a year or so old and they are routinely neutered and it was actively encouraged whereas I think particularly in male dogs people are are sort of more reserved in terms of neutering mm-hmm. um females I think unless people are breeding then they tend to to neuter from a, a risk of pymetria yeah but it, it does mean that yes in the the sports dog world there is still a, a large proportion of, of neutered dogs um, compared to to entire. But as Emily said, we did see some of them were were neutered through the season. <laughs> Obviously, given a break yeah. from racing while that's sure. happening as well. Um, but it did make it a bit more challenging. But but did mean we didn't have the numbers to look at that. Yeah, yeah, that's that, that makes sense. I I've got one intact dog and one neutered dog, and there's a whole bunch of other differences between them. So obviously, it's very far from useful. But the intact one is the one who seems to get hotter and struggle more with the heat, despite being 
shorter coated. He's got big bat ears, um, <laughs> upright. Uh, he's gray versus black. Um, the other one's like a very traditional, like Scottish looking, uh, <laughs> fluffy black border collie. <laughs> but it's the intact one who struggles more with the heat. And again, there's probably a, a hundred reasons that could be, but. Um, okay. So yeah. So basically the biggest finding that we've talked about so far with the cane across then is that, yeah, clearly rectal, rectal temperature for these dogs is not necessarily telling us whether or not they're in a medical emergency. Cause it's not correlating with any other clinical signs. Um, what else did you find throughout, um, throughout that research? Uh, just to clarify, we took ear temperatures in that particular oh, study, okay. <laughs> um, purely because kind of approaching people and asking if we could take a rectal temperature in their dog um, right after they finished a race, um, we suspected people would probably be disinclined to <laughs> sign up to the study. And it's really important that the dogs didn't experience any undue stress during the research, because yeah. the last thing we wanted to do was have a dog that then was reluctant to race because they'd taken part in the study. Um, of course. But, yeah, they, they were the main points. Um, we did test, so um, later we were going to talk about myth-busting. In the UK Canicross world, for a while, there was this kind of rule that if you take the ambient temperature in centigrade and you multiply it by the relative humidity, and if the result is over a 1,000, then it's too hot to run, so you shouldn't race your dog, with no real evidence as to where that's come from. Um, so we did test whether that appeared to be remotely predictive for temperature, and yeah, it wasn't. Um, yeah i mean i <laughs> that yeah i mean we all want those little formulas um but i've been listening to um michael hobbs is a, a reporter that i really like who's got a couple different podcasts and one of the things that he says over and over in the shows that i've been listening to is like you know whenever you hear a number like that that's that round <laughs> Uh, you should start asking whether or not, you know, it still may be a useful rule of thumb. It's not that we necessarily have to throw that out. But yeah, the, the fact that it comes out to a thousand, that's the important yeah. thing. That seems like it can't possibly be databased. And I, I think as well, it's one of those where it's always a question we're asked is, well, what temperature is safe to run my dog? And it's just not something you can answer because of all the factors we've talked about actually there is no one size fits all approach for every single dog but also the risk is it, it lulls people into a false sense of security mm -hmm. of saying well if temperature times humidity is over a thousand well it's below a thousand so i'm safe and actually beside the fact that we know that there isn't any evidence to suggest that that number has any value to it actually relying on a particular number as a, a bit of a tick box exercise to say, well, I'm safe to run my dog because the number says so. Actually, it's more about having an awareness of your environment and knowing your dog to reduce that risk and knowing when to stop or slow down or give them water or cool them. That's the important thing over mm -hmm. and above the conditions alone. Yeah. I mean, again, going back to like the ski joring example, I'm like, well, that means that whenever it's zero degrees out, it's impossible to ever overheat your dog. And that, yeah. you know, I, I, for a lot of dogs who aren't used to those temperatures, that might be true. It might be kind of impossible to overheat <laughs> a dog that's used to 30 degrees Celsius uh, at zero. But um, yeah, anyway, we don't need to harp on that too much because this yeah. is a conservation dog <laughs> podcast and generally we're not working in sub freezing temperatures. Um, 
But I think even at those middle of the range temperatures, some of the, the work we've looked at with the vet compass data, actually, you know, we're finding that dogs that are simply being walked in warmer conditions and it doesn't necessarily have to be hot weather, they are at risk. And yeah. again, I think in part because when it is hotter, there tends to be an assumption of I need to be careful because the weather's hotter. Um, yeah. Whereas when we're in that kind of middle ground of it's warmer, but but not really hot, the assumption is, well, it's okay because it's not too hot. And so you let your guard down a little bit. Yeah. I think that's something to flag about the UK in particular. Um, being a, a teeny tiny little island surrounded by sea, our dogs just don't get an opportunity to acclimatize to heat. Um, you know, they, yeah. they kind of, they recommend that it takes around six weeks for a dog to acclimatize to working in the heat. I think the last time we had six weeks of hot weather was maybe 2018. <laughs> it's been a while. Um, yeah. So our dogs don't get that. Whereas, you know, we see research coming out of, of countries where dogs are, you know, they're running and they're working in 20, 30 degree centigrade heat. And that would just be insane for us. But those dogs have had an opportunity to acclimate to the hot weather. Um, yeah. And that, that is an important factor that does need considering. And it's something that you can actively aim to achieve if you know that your dog is going to be needing to work and exercise in hot weather. Yeah, exactly. I mean, when we were in Guatemala, I just, it looks like it was about 86 degrees Fahrenheit as our, our typical working day, which is yeah, 30 Celsius. And it probably got hotter than that. And it was like 80% humidity. It was terrible. Um, <laughs> But yeah, they worked. They worked great. And but we'd been living in Central America leading up to it. So what are some of those other, you know, aside from taking the temperature of our dog, what are some of the things that we should be looking at kind of with the dog? And then, you know, we've already hit on a little bit, you know, the the changes in temperature being one of the most important things. But if we're just looking at our dog and trying to figure out, you know, do I do I need to pull over and start making some adjustments? What might be we be see, what might we be seeing? So, in terms of kind of the really early signs of heat related illness, um, some of the first things you're going to see are related to breathing. Um, as we know, mm -hmm. dogs don't sweat. Yes, they do sweat, but not in a thermoregulatory capacity. Um, so, unlike yeah. humans, where sweat is our, one of our predominant means of, of coping with profound hyperthermia the dogs are going to pant um so if they're panting really we, we almost call it furious panting um yeah and we have a video of that on our blog which you can link to um where you know the mouth is really open the, the gums are with are exposed because the lips are drawn back the tongue is kind of almost touching the Lulling, floor yeah uh, yeah the the mucous membranes are brick red and they are just panting 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 and it doesn't stop when we stop exercise or remove them from the heat um so that is you know that's an early sign essentially mm -hmm. that they have got mild heat related illness if we then see them going into respiratory difficulty um then things are, are progressing and getting more severe yeah. and also quite often we'll see that the dogs develop um a reluctance to move so they become stiff they maybe become lethargic and from our discussions with um our kind of colleagues who who do a lot of canny cross who've observed their dogs probably developing the early stages of heat related mm -hmm. illness subtle changes in the way they perform um so perhaps not pulling quite as much as they normally would do perhaps not responding to calls that are made um can be early signs oh, and that uh -huh. i think should probably be a fairly 
urgent <laughs> piece of research that needs doing to kind of detect how he is affecting dogs when they have a job to do. And, and I think that, that does link really nicely with your conservation side of things is are the dogs starting to just drop in performance slightly mm-hmm. and almost that sense of, well, they feel like they're fatiguing but they shouldn't be fatiguing for the amount of work they've done. So are we starting to see them just a little bit less, a little bit less willing to, to track and perform? Yeah. In which case, is that actually related to, to a response to the heat and those early signs? Yeah, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And I know, you know, for us, as opposed to Cana Cross, we might already be a little bit more attuned to the panting thing because you know, by the time the dog is really starting to do like a big open mouthed pant, we're usually trying to pull them back and cool them down anyway, just so that they can improve their scenting. You know, dogs can scent with their mouths open, but when you've got that huge open mouthed pant, they're just, you know, they're, they're more focused on expelling heat than, than really um, bringing in fresh air through their nose. So maybe that's one of the advantages that we have as far as while we are actively working, if panting is one of the biggest things you need to watch for, we're probably watching that more carefully, even for other reasons. But then as far as, you know, when we get into fitness and, you know, conditioning our dogs, we still could uh, could push them past that point of panting. Uh, so if they do problem. kind of go beyond that point, if we don't spot that and we continue working them or leave them in a hot environment, then the next round of signs we're going to see really indicate that there's damage starting to happen. So vomiting, diarrhea, really excess drooling, um, mm. uh, kind of signs that the dog's progressing into more of a moderate heat-related illness stage. Um, and even as far as single seizures um, mm. and episodic collapse so they collapse but then can get up again after a little while um and no impairment to their consciousness at that stage once we start seeing signs that their neurological function is really disturbed so um seizures multiple seizures status epilepticus mm-hmm. so staying in a seizure um ataxia so not being coordinated in how they're moving and responding mm-hmm. then we're into signs of severe disease um, and certainly in the study that we did on the UK pet dogs, less than 50% of the dogs with severe disease survived. So yeah, we, wow. we really don't want to be letting them get to that stage. We, we definitely want to be picking them up when they've got the mild to moderate signs. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I didn't realize that the mortality rate was quite that high. But yeah, I guess, I mean, if you're getting to the point that they're seizing and you're getting altered mental status and those sorts of things. And it's interesting, the the thing about cues potentially anecdotally being something that we want to explore because that actually, you know, just thinking back to my wilderness first responder course, you know, thinking about like level of responsiveness scales for humans. um, That's not something that we I've necessarily ever heard of for dogs, but it would be a really useful scale if it does exist or, you know, a test of some sort to be able to ask the dog, Hey, can you do this? No? Okay, that's telling me something about kind of somewhere on that physical to mental axis of your your capabilities. So let us know when you've done that research, okay? <laughs> <laughs> if anyone would it, that would be lovely. <laughs> yeah, and, and we'll, uh, we'll crowdfund is, it. <laughs> this is one of the things we've tried to achieve with the scale is, you know, we have the scale in the human medical literature coming through, but a lot of this is based on self-reporting. The challenges we've got with dogs is they can't self-report. We can't turn around and say, how yeah. are you feeling? So actually 
by grouping these clinical signs together, we can have a better understanding of that mm-hmm. mild, moderate and severe. But if we could have some kind of test associated to have that basic level of, you know, a bit like your... Are you uh, are you sober and can you walk in a straight line right, and you touch yeah. your nose? If we could do that with our dogs and say, well, we could use this as a, a basic understanding of of are they just dipping into that um, sort of mild heat related illness status? Then that that would be fantastic to have some sort of tool. But at this stage, with without that, then at least to be able to have that understanding of of those subtle changes that we're seeing and and often they are subtle and I think particularly where we're looking at dogs that are working whether that is as athletes or as as working dogs then often they're very focused on their their goal and their output and we don't necessarily notice that progression until we stop them and I think that's quite crucial as well that that they're not necessarily going to stop themselves because they've got a job to do and that drive and that work work ethic that is so important in their role can sometimes mask that kind of feeling of actually I'm I'm getting too hot and I need to stop Mm -hmm. yeah yeah again going back to our experience in Guatemala I had to it was funny because the first couple times this happened all the all the other uh, the rangers that we were with thought that I had something wrong with me but barley wouldn't relax and wouldn't rest um unless I also sat down and (laughs) took a break because if we just kind of stood there you know we tried this a couple times just standing there and trying to get him to lie down and cool off um he would just you know he would lie down for a second if I told him to and then get up and then stand there panting and then you know try to run off and start searching again (laughs) and like he's he wasn't actually in a frame of mind or physically in a place where he could be searching. But if we didn't also sit down and it felt like there was a possibility that the work was going to start again, he couldn't, he couldn't stop. Yeah. Um, and certainly and- we see that sort of anecdotally across, across the canny cross dogs and, you know, from personal experience, my, mm-hmm. my old canny cross dog, um, if it was over 15 degrees, you're on your own. He'd trot along uh-huh. beside you, but he certainly wasn't going to put any effort in. He wasn't going to be pulling um, because it's too hot. Thank you very much. Um, my GSPs and the pointers are very, very driven. And, you know, with them, I have to be very careful because they have mm-hmm. that work ethic of, well, you've asked me to run, so I'm going to run because that's my job. And it's only when you stop them and they are panting like mad that then that realisation of, I needed to make that decision sooner because the drive was there to keep going. And I, I think we, we sometimes get people saying, oh, but if it's too warm, surely they'll stop. Right. And, and often they really don't. And, and I think that's important to recognise that it's a bit like with children. Sometimes we have to be the sensible adult and go, no, I've seen those early signs. I'm aware that I'm just starting to see. And it might just be a slight, you know, movement to to the left or the right where they normally run very straight. Or and again, knowing your mm-hmm. dog and what they do, that actually those very subtle signs are enough to say, I just need to give them a break. And like you say with your dog, stop them, make sure they're laying down, resting before continuing. And and if needs be, actively cooling them in that process as well. Yeah, definitely. And really, yeah, really so much of it is knowing, knowing your dog and knowing, knowing the signs so that you can be, I like that phrase, the adult in the room, because yeah, I know when I first got Barley, he was my first dog that kind of was at this, this level. And, um, 
I remember, I think I left him with my then boyfriend for a weekend. I can't remember why. And, um, he was like, yeah, I just, I just went out and I was like, I'm going to play fetch with him until he stops so that, you know, he'll be tired for the rest of the weekend. And I was like, no, 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 don't do that. Because if you get to the point where he stops, like, um, he's going to be too far gone and, you know, had a little bit of a back and forth with this, this guy who, you know, he's like, no, I, I think he'll stop. And I was like, I really don't think he will. No. Um, Especially Collie as well. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah, and, and, and yeah, and I don't think he would. You know, I still, you know, have to run behind him. He's nine and a half now, and I'm running behind him on off-leash trails, being like, "Don't throw that!" You know, like <laughs> he's had a TPLO and a spinal injury. Like, please don't play fetch with him. Um, and uh, yeah, we just th- this is neither here nor there, but we just moved in next to a, a disc golf course. And um, <laughs> so now it's like every single time I take him out, I uh, even though it's an off leash area, I have to constantly be putting him on and off leash because, you know, people playing disc golf is just I mean, it's kryptonite for him. Uh, and he's an extraordinarily well trained dog, but I can't call him off of someone playing playing disc golf and flinging a frisbee across the field. <laughs> Um, okay, so why don't we, on that topic, talk a little bit about ways to keep dogs cool and help cool them down, and then we'll come back to a couple of the other the other things that we haven't covered yet. So I think one of the first things to consider is how kind of prepared your dog is for the heat. So we've touched on being acclimatized to working in the heat, um, but one of the really important factors, which we, we haven't tried to measure, but really does need to be at the forefront of your mind in hot weather, is how hydrated your dog is. Um, if your dog is even remotely dehydrated, um, that could just be because they've not had access to water because you've been traveling, um, or obviously if they've had anything like vomiting and diarrhea, they're likely to be dehydrated that is going to impact their ability to pant effectively and cool down Um, and it will mean that they stay hotter for longer get hotter quicker um, and it's just going to increase their risk so yeah really really pushing hydration as an important strategy for looking after your dog in hot weather also all the things that we found that were risk factors for for heat related illness so being overweight and poor respiratory function are super important so if you know your dog's had a recent bout of kennel cough um, or if you know that your dog is getting older and perhaps has some reduced respiratory capacity say um, copd or bronchitis or laryngeal paralysis and some of our big dogs mm. is a real concern that is a killer in the hot weather um, then you need to be aware of that and with that um, some of Anne's research actually how you're restraining your dog if they're in a collar and that collar's putting pressure on their throat is that potentially impacting their respiratory function um, so yeah making sure that they they can breathe and they can pant effectively is super important we kind of touched on coat length and to clip or not to clip I think is going to be the big debate for the next couple of years until someone manages to do a study but certainly if your dog is working a lot that coat is not going to be helping them um so yeah if you do have a thick coated breed and they are having to work in the heat then i think that is something to consider some people advocate for kind of covering them in water before they exercise as the water evaporates that is going to help take heat away um but yeah, they're, they're kind of the big things. And as I say, getting them fit, making sure that they are athletically fit and ready to do the, the work that you want them to do um, is super important. Yeah, I've always noticed, again, going back to Barley, he's, you know, very thick double coat. Like one of the most helpful things I can do for him is 
brushing him really regularly, but then also taking one of those really good like undercoat rakes. And really, I, I, I mean, I can notice a, a, a difference from one brushing before and after. If we're especially, it, I've noticed for him, it seems anecdotally to be high humidity environments that he struggles in more than a high heat, like desert versus jungle. The jungle is definitely seems to be harder for him, but also seems to be most affected by taking care of the coat. I've never clipped him um, because there's so many yeah big uh, discussions about that on the internet. But, you know, I will say when they, they shaved his leg for his TPLO, his hair all grew out back just fine. He just looked like a the skinned turkey for a couple <laughs> of weeks there and, and, you know, a little bit less, less dumb every week for a couple months there. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, I know I've seen, um, I think it's some of the coursing hounds um, that they do like clips around the belly and shave down to the skin around the belly to really cool these dogs off. Yeah, and actually um, in the UK, the, the trail hounds, they will often clip them all over because uh-huh. they're they're out in the summer. They're a short-coated <laughs> breed anyway, but, but traditionally it's one that they have always clipped. Um, again, anecdotally, they, they seem to think it's quite effective, but it's not mm-hmm. something that's been measured. So it'd be interesting to see the effect that has. Yeah, it would be really interesting, especially, you know, again, I know you see it being passed around so much of like never, ever, ever, ever shave double coated dogs. Um, and it, yeah, it'll be really interesting to see if someone can actually do that research and compare, you know, all of the different coat types as well, because, you know, until, until we've got a good answer with some of the double coated or thicker coated, you know, dogs, it's just, it's not really helpful to say what works for a poodle um, or versus uh, yeah, like a double coated breed. Yeah, definitely. Or at least as far as that, 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 uh, I I don't even want to call it a myth yet because we don't know if it's myth, but like as far as that um, belief. Yeah. And I I think as you alluded Mm -hmm. to as well, the kind of how the coat then responds in growing back, um, which is also kind of, you say it's important for double coated dogs. Again, you get polarized views on that as to whether it's an issue, whether it's not. And Mm -hmm. the, the bottom line is we just don't know because we just don't have the research there yet to, to support one way or the other. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, yeah, it, I, I would love to see someone do that research. So, okay, um, do you have anything that you want to say as far as cooling down hot dogs, as far as myth busting or hot tips, um, cold tips, I suppose? Um, and then we'll we'll talk about cars. Yeah, so probably to reiterate what Janice said previously, plenty of the literature and evidence still spouts the myth that cooling quickly and cooling with cold water is dangerous and given that that is the i mean i don't really like saying gold standard but you know the best practice for cooling human athletes and equine athletes is cold water rapid cooling um there's no reason it would be different in dogs we Mm -hmm. have a study that we are in the process of writing up um where we essentially went back to the canicross group again um and took more temperatures uh but took their temperatures for up to 15 minutes after exercise and recorded who used what cooling methods bearing in mind this was in the middle of the winter in the uk and when i say that the lake temperature was 0.5 degrees centigrade (laughs) so just above freezing Uh point and dogs were still deliberately chucking themselves into the lake at the end of a race to cool down and that was by far the most effective cooling method that we observed that the dogs got a lot cooler a lot quicker um, when they immersed in cold water if you have an unwell dog or an elderly dog or a dog with poor respiratory function or one of the brachycephalic breeds then 
yes, there's a risk of drowning. So um, <laughs> cold water immersion isn't for every dog. Uh, and certainly if your dog has lost consciousness, then you need to absolutely protect their airway. And for that reason, pouring cold water onto them alongside air movement is the, the recommended cooling method um, for older dogs or unwell dogs or unconscious dogs. Um, and as I say, a lot of that comes from, from Janice's group and their recommendations. Mm-hmm. But yeah, the myth that you shouldn't use cold water, it's just not supported. But on that, actually in an emergency situation, it's whatever water you have access to. Because let's be honest, if you're in a jungle, where are you getting cold water from? <laughs> right. Is it just lying around? Are there just freezer boxes of cold water? No. So as long as the water is cooler than the dog, then it is still yeah. going to be effective in cooling. Um, and again, some US military working dog groups have have looked at that and have looked at cooling dogs in 30 centigrade water and they do still cool. Um, yeah. So yeah. Yeah, Barley was definitely seeking out, um, you know, there, we had one kind of swampy area and a couple rivers that we crossed and one giant puddle that I've got a pretty hilarious photo of him lying in that was from a tire truck, tire rut. Um, he's just like in full hippopotamus mode in it. Um, and, but yeah, even this water that wasn't necessarily super duper cold, he was, you know, choosing to seek that out. And whenever he seeks out water, it was like, okay, everyone stop. Everyone take a water break. Until Barley decides to come out of the water, we're, we're waiting right now. Um, and then also we're doing gator checks. Um, <laughs> make sure he doesn't get eaten. Uh, for, uh, we weren't far enough south for anacondas, but we had, you know, all sorts of other terrifying things that you, can't, you still had to worry about in the water. But uh, yeah, anyway, so, okay. So, and when before we hit record and you had a really good um metaphor and i know we're really hitting on this on this but it's such a prevalent myth that i really want to make sure people get it so, but you had a great um e- explanation for why cooling rapidly um is so helpful explanation yeah, I, sorry <laughs> <laughs> Yay. Um, I, I always think of it of like boiling an egg. So if you're trying to make a soft boiled egg, so you want the middle nice and gooey, but you want the outside solid so you can eat it, um, then you you put it in boiling water. And at the point that it is ready, you take it out of the water and you either need to eat it straight away or put it into cold water. Because if we don't cool it down, it's going to keep cooking. And our dogs are very much like that in terms of their internal organs. We need to be cooling them quickly and as rapidly as possible in cold water. Otherwise, those internal organs are going to carry on cooking. So Mm -hmm. we don't want to end up with our hard boiled egg. We don't want the the yellow to go completely solid. Um, So cool it down as quickly as possible. Cold water. But actually, lukewarm water is still going to take that heat out of Mm -hmm. our egg. Um, And, you know, you can feel it in the water. You keep replacing the water. You move it around to get that cooling process. Yeah. As I said, in exactly the same way, the internal organs are ultimately cooking. That is what is going to kill our dogs. So to stop that from happening, that rapid cooling is going to drop that internal body temperature and stop those organs from cooking. We, we sometimes see people having a fear of the dogs getting too cold, which we were talking mm-hmm. about earlier, that kind of you finish exercising, you're really sweaty, you develop hypothermia because, you know, you, you're struggling to control your body temperature. But at the end of the day, you have to get pretty cold before hypothermia is starting to, to cause real damage. Whereas the longer the dog stays above that critical temperature, 
as Anna said, the more thermal damage is being done to organs. And that damage is often irreversible. When we think about, again, cooking an egg is a perfect example. Once you've boiled that egg, once that yolk is solid, you can't turn it back to the runny egg yeah. again. And it's the same. Once you know the proteins have been denatured within the body, they're denatured, they're gone. So if you've damaged that brain tissue, if you've damaged that kidney tissue, that is tissue that is not going to repair and recover mm -hmm. that's irreversible damage to the dog um and when again when we looked at our vet compass study when we looked at dogs presenting with hypothermia so the ones that had been cooled prior to arriving there was no increased risk of death so yeah. yes they might be too cold but i think it's more dangerous to leave a dog dangerously hot for longer because the longer they're at that temperature the more damage is being done yeah, that makes sense to me. Yeah. Um, okay, so let's close out here with anything that we'd like to say about car research and the dangers of cars. So far, we've been very exercise focused. And I know the car thing could probably be a whole another one hour conversation. <laughs> um, but so, think, yeah, sorry, what do we have to think about with cars? I think the biggest thing to remember with cars is if you're not observing your dog directly, you don't know what condition they're in. And exactly what we were talking about with exercise, as soon as you start to see those mild signs of, of heat-related illness, that excessive panting, that lethargy, um, then you need to take action. And if you've left your dog in a car or you are travelling with your dog in a car and you can't see them and monitor them, if they're in the back of a van, for example, you don't know what condition they're in. And it's when dogs are left unattended in the heat, and that's vehicles as well as buildings, um, as well as ambient conditions, if, if we're in a heatwave situation, you don't know how severe their illness is and you have no means of getting them out of that dangerous situation. So not being able to monitor them is that really is the big killer. Yeah. Yeah. I've thought many, many times about trying to install a good camera system in my my van for the dogs because I've, so I've been living out of a sprinter van for the last two years. Um, and Baby monitors, apparently. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I've been. I I, I didn't get one for the last like nine months because I was living in Central America and just with all the phone service and international things, it just wasn't wasn't worth it. But then you know you're in the situation where you're living in El Salvador during the dry season and you know trying to figure out when and how it was safe to leave the car, the dogs in the car. Um, and you know we had all sorts of things that we have set up um, with the the car, and I've never had a problem. But yeah, it was always one of those things where I was like. You know, if today is the day that the fuse blows on my on my batteries and my fan stops working uh, at the same time that, you know, my window shades fall down at the same time that my battery powered fan also stops, you know, we could, you know, we could be in trouble really quickly. And I don't necessarily have a way to know. And, you know, we tried to have all sorts of redundant systems to avoid that. But that also is kind of the privilege of being in a van that. It's much easier to keep a giant white solar powered van cool than kind of your average car. Yeah, and it, and it is, I think, one of the challenges. I mean, we we have big campaigns in in the UK about not leaving dogs in cars, particularly in the summer period. Um, and also, there's there's the whole mad dogs and mad dogs and Englishmen go out in the midday sun and, and that worry about the middle of the day. But actually what we found when we looked at temperatures in cars, and I have to say we didn't put any dogs in the vehicles at this point. This was looking at empty cars. Um, <laughs> but actually it's, it's the early afternoon period where the car is at its hottest mm -hmm. rather than the midday period. 
but the risk factor is pretty much year round. Um, so we were finding, and again, you might need to do some some nifty calculations of centigrade to, uh, to Fahrenheit, but we found that from April to September, so from spring to autumn, cars were exceeding 40 degrees on a regular basis, 40 degrees centigrade. And from so February... 104. Yeah. So, and then February to October, so really hitting the, the end of winter to the very end of autumn, they're exceeding 30 degrees centigrade. Okay. And that's, that's 86, which is a little bit safer of a temperature for, um, for an adjusted and, dog. But And year-round exceeding 25 degrees C and we know that brachycephalic breeds particularly can overheat in 21 degrees C yeah wow so again that breed effect added in there is an extra component of saying okay for your average dog we've always got some level of risk we need to be aware of but for your brachycephalic breeds there really is an increased risk year-round and and we had at the hottest point, full sun, black tarmac, car park. Um, we reached 54 and a half degrees C in the middle of summer. Yeah, that doesn't surprise me. Um, um, gosh, but okay. So I just have to go back. So 21 degrees Celsius is 69.8 degrees Fahrenheit. That is like the temperature that I keep the inside of my house. And they can overheat at that. That's wild. That that goes to show how severely handicapped brachycephalic dogs can be when their respiratory function isn't working properly. Oh my properly. god! Yeah, so they have a kind of almost a triple whammy, really. So they have narrowed airways, so they're not they're not able to move air as efficiently as a regular dog. So they use more muscle effort to move that air. So, you know, mm-hmm. they're having to use their abdomen. They're having to use their, their thorax like bellows to try and shift air in and out. And that increased muscle activity is generating more heat. Then they've got really short little noses. So they have nowhere near the surface area that, uh, a, you know, a, a regular dog, a collie, a pointer would have for heat transfer through panting, through evaporation and evaporative heat loss. So they've got reduced heat loss and increased heat production from trying to breathe. So, yeah, when they get stressed, they can just flip and and very quickly find themselves in a hypothermic crisis um, that they then can't get out of without our assistance. Yeah, that's that's yeah. wild to me. Like I knew it was I knew it was a lot cooler, um, but I didn't realize. I mean, again, that is that is colder than I keep the inside of my house during the summer most years. Um, and, and I think there is also when it gets very warm as it cools down is the assumption that it's okay because it's cooled off, but sometimes it's not actually cooled off enough. And mm-hmm. um, both with cars and out and about and exercising is, you know, we, we're feeling cooler, but you're still out there in a t-shirt. Um, so also that awareness of the environment and the environmental change as, as well. Yeah, yeah. So it's like on on the upward trend, we need to be really concerned about making sure our dogs are acclimated. But then on the downward trend, we need to not just look at the difference and the fact that it feels better, but also that absolute temperature. Because yeah, the difference between 35 and 30, 35 probably feels great, but it's still really hot. So like we always need to be thinking about both factors, that difference and the absolute, right? Yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah. Wow. Um, okay. Is there anything that we didn't cover that you guys want to expand on, go back to something I didn't ask you that I should have asked about? I don't think so. Um, I think the only other thing that we maybe haven't touched on is obviously we've talked a lot about exercise triggering heat related illness and hot cars triggering heat related illness. But one of the things that we found and were slightly surprised and to be honest a little bit heartbroken reading some of these histories and the vet records um was just how many things can trigger heat related illness so dogs being trapped in hot buildings we were not expecting in the uk but it was a real problem and particularly a problem in london um so yeah thinking about the buildings that your dogs are in and as we were just talking about if it's hot overnight that can be a real problem um mm-hmm. but also dogs developing heat related illness whilst under veterinary care and whilst under grooming care as well Ooh. so if we've got a situation where the dog is getting stressed perhaps and responding to that stressful situation and it's also a bit warm you know we quite often keep vet practices warm because we've got sick animals recovering from surgery um, and obviously groomers we've got hot air being blown if they're drying the dogs um then yeah we were seeing dogs develop it whilst under treatment um so yeah it's not just hot cars and exercise wow. you do need to be thinking about yeah. everything else that's, that's um, going on and I think added to that, conservatories. So if yeah. you've got conservatory or sunroom where the dog might wander in, the dog shuts behind them, can they get out of that environment? Or, you know, I know we're talking on the dog side of things, but cats are a classic one for falling asleep in these kind of places. And our, our elderly dogs as well, you know, they might be less aware. They they fall asleep and they don't realise. Um, so any, any of those kind of entrapment situations and underfloor heating it's really nice for us to be on but again if they can't get away from that heat source and we've got the temperature racked up a little bit and ultimately the same goes for our cars you get into your car on a cold day you crank the heating up because it's a little bit chilly um is it getting a bit too warm for them in in the back of the car yeah yeah maybe this is one of those situations where it's good that I'm, I'm kind of someone who's easily annoyed by my dog's panting. So if we're not actively exercising, I'm annoyed by it. So I'm kind of constantly looking for ways to get them to stop. <laughs> um, maybe that's, that's a good thing. And I also have Velcro dogs. So I, you know, tend to either assume that they're getting into something or uh, something's wrong if they're not kind of directly underfoot, but yeah, the conservatory sunroom thing is something I'd, I'd never thought about. And I can totally see either my dogs or my cat getting themselves trapped in a sunroom and cooking themselves. Um, lots of stuff to think about. And uh, of course, now we're, we're, we're recording at the end of August. So for everyone in our Northern Hemisphere, which is well over half of our listeners, we're now moving into the time of year where hypothetically we're at lower risk, at least as far as ambient temperatures. But, you know, we also just learned all the different ways that we could still get ourselves into trouble over fall and uh, fall into winter. And, you know, all of our Australian listeners are just about to head into it. <laughs> So, um, well, great. Is there anywhere that people should look to follow you guys online, find your research, support your work, anything like that, that you'd like to plug before we close out here? Yeah, we have a blog, which is heatstroke.dog. Great. That's pretty <laughs> Easy to remember. Um, and that has access to all of our research and the kind of the posts that we put out at points of year to kind of translate the research into more easily digestible chunks for people to understand. And that has links to our social media. Um, so you can follow us on Facebook if you'd like. Excellent. We will link that in the show notes as usual. Um, and for so thank you both so much for coming on. I uh, I really genuinely learned a lot. I wasn't 
I was excited to do a second heat episode, but I was like, gosh, are people going to be sick of this? You know, two in a row. Um, but I, I, I genuinely learned a lot. And uh, this was a really nice compliment and expansion on Janice's primer. Um, so for everyone at home, I hope you're feeling inspired to get outside and be a canine conservationist in whatever way it suits your passions and skill set. Maybe today is the day that you finally order that thermometer so that you can start getting a baseline on your dog. Um, my dogs, I think they know the, the, the outro of the podcast. They both started getting up just now. Um, and as always, you can order t-shirts, mugs, tote bags, bento boxes, all that good stuff over at canineconservationists.org slash shop. You can find transcripts and summaries of each episode also at canineconservationists.org. And finally, as always, we have our Patreon learning club and our full online conservation dog course again at canineconservationists.org. Thanks so much for listening. And Anne and Emily, thank you so much for everything you're doing for the dogs. 